Hey there, Stephanie here. Before you listen to this amazing episode, we have something to ask you. Do you feel like you've been stagnating in your current position as a Ruby on Rails developer? Working on projects that aren't getting you to the next level, stuck in a mid-level position? Have you been applying to jobs and getting rejected? It can be hard to improve your skills outside of your work, but what if you knew exactly how to get your software engineering skills to the next level. Now you can get hands-on experience with designing and architecting production-grade Ruby applications in our workshop. We are going to launch our software design workshop soon. Go to hexdevs.com workshop and get on the waitlist today. Enjoy the episode! Dr. Randy Patterson is a psychologist and author from Vancouver, Canada. He is the author of How to Be Miserable, 40 Strategies You Already Use, which is a really great title for the book. He's also the author of The Assertiveness Workbook, Your Depression Map, Private Practice Made Simple, and How to Be Miserable in Your 20s. Another great title. He's a prolific public speaker. He also has a YouTube channel called How to Be Miserable. I came across Dr. Patterson's work because my therapist, Dr. Jane Wool, recommended his book, The Assertiveness Workbook. All I can say is that it changed my life. And as I was reading it, I couldn't help but think that much of the problems that we face every day as developers are caused by poor communication and lack of assertiveness skills. After all, we are still humans. <laughs> And although Dr. Patterson might not be familiar with, with the specific situations we face in our daily work as developers, the assertiveness skills themselves are kind of the same across any organization, and it couldn't be any different with software. So I'm super happy to have Dr. Patterson as our guest today. Dr. Patterson, welcome to the HexDevs podcast. Well, thank you for having me. I would like to get started by asking you, what is assertiveness and what isn't assertiveness? Well, when we talk about assertiveness, usually it's as one of four basic communication styles. And in the assertiveness workbook, I, I like to use a kind of uh, theater stage metaphor. The passive style is the first of those styles. And in the passive style, everybody's allowed on stage you know, your other team members, your boss, your family members, and so on. Everybody's allowed on stage. They're allowed to have their opinions. They're allowed to say what they want. And your job is to be down in the audience, you know, just supporting them. That's it. You're not allowed on stage. The second style is the, the aggressive style. And the aggressive style, you're allowed on stage, but it's a little bit like a sumo wrestling ring because your job is to get everybody else off the stage right and and push everybody into the out into the audience their job is to be audience for you so you're the only person who counts your way has to be the way that wins you have to win every encounter and make sure that people sort of obey you third style is the passive aggressive style and in this one you want to get your own way but you're a little bit anxious about getting a counterattack from other people and so you do it in a sneaky way. So you talk 
to your coworkers behind the boss's back rather than addressing the issue directly. Or you're given a job and you do it so badly that you know you will never be asked to do it again, rather than just saying, I would rather not do this. There's a number of other ways that the, the passive aggressive style comes out, but you get the picture. The assertive style involves direct communication in which you're allowed on stage, but so is everyone else. Everybody is important. Everybody's opinion counts. There might be some people who have uh, an opinion based on great expertise, and frankly, their opinion counts more than yours. But everybody is worthy of equal respect. You know, for example, with, if I'm in a room with a nuclear physicist, I presume that the nuclear physicist knows more about that topic than I do, but I'm still a human being, right? It doesn't mean that my opinions about nuclear physics are necessarily as informed as hers are. But assertiveness, I mean, for many people, they think of assertiveness as being kind of like watered down aggression. Like you're going to be really obnoxious, but it's just like aggressiveness without the yelling. And that's totally a misunderstanding of what assertiveness is. Assertiveness is always, uh, or almost always, very relaxed, very open, but characterized by clarity. So you're actually saying what it is that you mean in a way that it is not attacking the other person. Maybe that gives some idea at any rate. Yeah, that was a great explanation. And you kind of touched on an important point of why assertiveness can be hard for people to develop. I can say from my experience, I had this misconception for sure. What I thought assertiveness meant was that I would be harsh, I would be unkind, and I had lots of people treating me that way. So I was like, no, I don't want to be that way. And I know that you touched you touch this in your book, the reasons why it's so hard for some people to be assertive. And I wondered if you could just briefly share what are the reasons that hold people back? Like what are the most situations that prevent people? Well, one of them is that idea that being assertive means being aggressive. Their idea of assertiveness is, is some kind of, maybe they've seen some FBI SWAT team go in somewhere on some television show, and they imagine that that's what assertiveness is. Stephanie, what I want you to do right now is turn down the volume on your microphone, you idiot, or something to that effect. That's completely not what it is. There's also the sense that if you're assertive, you get your way and nobody else gets theirs. People like to be kind of democratic, a sense that everybody counts. And that's really what assertiveness is all about. But the image it has is, if I'm assertive about what restaurant we go to, we're going to my restaurant, regardless of what you think, right? So I'm really pulling rank over everybody and I'm saying exactly what you are going to do. It's not about that at all. You know, when I first wrote the book, I was doing a lot of radio interviews about it. If you're doing a radio interview, typically you've got about five minutes and they're going to you know, say, well, what's the main point of your book? And really the assertiveness workbook is 200 pages of tips. So what's the main point? And I thought, I don't really know what the main point of assertiveness is, even though I wrote the book on the subject or a book on the subject. But over time I became to realize that actually there is a core concept. And that is that when you're being aggressive, you're really trying to control the other person. You know, like in that example, I was just trying to control what you do with your microphone or whatever, you know, 
In assertiveness, it's really about letting go of controlling other people. You're not trying to control anybody else. All you're controlling is your own behavior. And that's a really key concept. I have a classic example that I, I often give that may not relate very well to people in the programming community, but I think it illustrates the concept. And that's a woman who was in an assertiveness group many years ago when the program was first being developed. And she said, you know, I, I have this real big problem. I got this like kid, he's like 17 years old. He's just learned to drive. The deal is he can borrow my car, but he's supposed to bring it back with gas in it. And he never does. I don't like, what's the, like he never brings it back with gas. It's all the time. He drives it around, he comes back. There's no gas in the car. And I've started yelling and nagging and trying to, how do I make this kid change? And there's a little trick in an assertiveness training group. And that is if you're the leader, if you're the therapist, you get the other group members to do your dirty work for you. As a therapist, you say, oh, and what does the group think of this? And the, and the group actually came, came up with it exactly. They said, your son is not the problem. You are the problem. Why are you the problem? Because they're your keys and you're the one handing them over. And their initial thought was stop loading him the damn car which wasn't really gonna work very well because he needed the practice. But what they came up with is that she would say to him, you know, do what you like. You know, you can, you can fill it with gas, you can not fill it with gas. If you fill it with gas, you can borrow it again. If you don't fill it with gas, you can also borrow it again, but there'll be a two week gap. Totally up to you, you know, you decide. And so he, she loans him the keys, he brings it back and you can guess what happened. In fact, there was no gas in it, why? Because she had spent 18 years training him that when, when she said something, it didn't actually mean anything, right? He didn't have to have pay any attention to anything she said. She taught him this. So no surprise, she just holds on to the keys for two weeks. He's enraged because this totally changes the relationship. But then she hands him the keys after two weeks. He brings it back with gas and continues to do so because he had learned that she was going to control her own behavior. So long as she was trying to control him, it didn't work. And that's really what assertiveness is about, is, is about figuring out what is my role in this dance and how do I change my steps, not yours. That's the key point, I think, of all of assertiveness. I love that. And before we go to some questions specific to programming, I just wanted to say that I wrote down, I can't control others' behaviors. I can only control my behaviors. And I read that quote every day. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really critical. And the people think, oh, damn, that means all these obnoxious people around me. I can't do anything about them. Well, actually, by changing what we do, other people change in response to that. We sort of change the ecology of the environment. And it does change the way that work situations come up and, and, and are handled in a much more effective way than me trying to manipulate what everybody else is doing. That kind of reminds me of programming because sometimes you want people to do things your way. So there's a lot of that in programming where you write the code in a certain way, a certain style. So that's how you work. And then you want other people to follow you, but there's not... It's not necessarily the best way at all. It's just your opinion. And we see a lot of that in, in, in our industry where people get angry, you know, looking at other people's code because they don't follow 
the way you think is the best way. And then there's kind of this style where sometimes people are aggressive and they say, oh, your code sucks, you're a bad developer. And then there's the, the other style where they're kind of passive aggressive. They nitpick on your code, but they don't say that is bad. They just say, oh, maybe if you change it this way, it's going to be better. But then they make your life harder, you know, because they don't tell you right away, oh, you need to change this because of this and that. They don't want to engage in the conflict. So they kind of avoid. What would be your suggestion for that case where people kind of avoid the conflict? They don't want to say their opinion because they know that they will have to explain their point of view. They will have to, you know, put their opinions out there, but they're not super um, confident in themselves sometimes, even if they have experience. So I see that a lot, even for experienced people. So what would be your suggestion? Yeah, I've, I've known a lot of people in, in programming and tech more broadly. And this is a really common thing that comes up. There are almost different cultures. You know, people might be using the same in effect language, but there's almost cultural variability and everyone is their own culture in, in programming. They have their own way of doing it, their own way of, you know, at one level, just naming variables or, or what have you. And if you're working on a big project where they're going to get, there's going to be contributions from many people in order for it to be understandable for somebody later on, it kind of all has to be written in the same culture. I think inevitably people get used to their own style and then think, ah, oh, that is the style. And so it's either I win or I lose and adopt somebody else's style. One thing that I would advocate is that within an organization, there be some kind of almost a meeting or, or a policy manual, hopefully when I think of a manual, I think of hundreds of pages, I'm hoping like three of, you know, this is kind of our style or our way of, of doing this. You know, we're going to name our variables this way. We're going to call out to this kind of external program or, or, or what have you. So there's some kind of agreement about it. And that should be done if, if it's not, if it doesn't really apply globally to the kinds of work that the company is doing, it should, it should be done at the beginning of every project where people say, okay, well, what's, what are our conventions going to be? And it seems like that's something that's often lacking in programming circles is that people don't have that initial, you know, what's our style going to be? You know, do we document first? Do we document later? Do we, you know, put it in the code? Do we just code? Do we like put it somewhere else? This is not decided early on. And then you wind up in these battles later on. I think part of it is a recognition that there are these different styles and that if people are disagreeing with you, it might be that they think that their way is the only strategy. But I think you can invite them to, to share with you. Like, what is it overall? What do you think our style should be? And what is the rationale for this change that you're, that you're talking about? I'm open to changes, right? There is zero probability that I'm going to do a bunch of programming and it's all going to run the first time. It's just not going to happen. And zero probability, even if it does run, that everybody's going to agree that that's exactly what we intended to produce. So we do need somehow to be able to communicate with each other rather than just relying on, maybe I'll just do it perfectly. And then we won't have to worry about whether there's corrections or communication afterwards. 
So what are our conventions up front? And then later on, be able to, to state why you do things the way that you're doing them and what your rationale is. I think there's a hidden belief for many people around assertiveness, which is that if you are comfortable with it, if you are in effect the assertive type, that it will just spontaneously occur to you. Like you will just open your mouth and perfect assertive phrases will come out. That's actually not the case. Assertiveness will always, 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 till the end of your life, take more thought than passivity. I'll just keep my mouth shut and hope. Or aggression. I'll just yell at people and call them idiots. Assertiveness will always be more difficult. And for that reason, it, uh, you need to get over the idea that if you need to think about it, you're inadequate in some way. No, if you need to think about it, then you're probably doing it. And so what I would say is like, what are the points being made and how can I think through what is it that I want to say? One of the things that I think comes up for a lot of people is uh, defensiveness, which has to do with people getting feedback and thinking the feedback is not about what this line of code is doing. The feedback is about my worth as a human being and whether I should ever have been hired to be part of this team in the first place. And, and we want to be able to take that off the shelf a little bit and be able to bring it back to what is it that's the matter with this code? People will often, out of frustration, phrase things as, what are you, an idiot? Or, you know, oh, I think it, this could be this way and this other thing that's three characters later, this should be that way. And four characters later, there's this thing that I think, you know, there's that sense that you're just being torn down as a human being you need to come back and focus on the actual task. Now, to some extent, that's feedback for the person giving you the feedback. <laughs> but I think when somebody is, is saying, oh, this is all wrong, I think one of the best things you can do is take out paper, like bring out a piece of paper and pen and say, okay, let's find out exactly what this is. And in effect, try not to deal with your own ego as much as possible to get your own ego out of the way, even though you are being attacked in some, some of these circumstances and be able to say, what do we think is the matter with this? And what, what needs, needs to be changed, at least in your view? And then let's talk about it with the team and find out. Let's come up with some kind of an agreement. I don't know if that answers your question. It's a bit long and wandering, but there we are. No, it certainly does what you're talking about one thing that I would be interested in learning from you is because what happens is most of the time people wait for someone to take the initiative to do those things and it's either your manager or the tech lead, but you can do it as well. Like you have the knowledge, you have the experience, you can just go and lead by example in a way. But then people are kind of afraid, you know, they don't want to put their opinions out there. They don't want to be the person setting up the rules for others to follow. So is there a way to kind of not feel that anxiety, an exercise, something to think about? Yes. I mean, in effect, in any job, uh, especially any team job, you are in service to the team. And so one can phrase these things in the terms of service. Look, 
what our team, like, let's say you're the junior person, right? Just showed up. You were hired a month ago. And, oh, we're doing this new thing where we're going to rearrange the payment scheme for this website or like whatever, right? I have no idea what, what people, your audience might be talking about, but nevertheless, let's imagine. But you're, you know, you're a month out. I, it would still be perfectly reasonable for you to say, look, I'm the new guy. I'm the new woman. And so I don't know the culture. Like, I don't know what the standards are and or, or how we do things. And so could we agree on or share what we think would be the good format for this? Where do we want the documentation? Separate document in the code? Like, what are we doing? Just so that I understand, so that I can produce what this team is trying to do, right? So we can almost always, well, this is not always the case, but often at least we can frame our assertive communication as service because it is in service to a better relation. Right. Rather than I'm going to go off into my little cubicle, code for two months, come back and pr have produced something that doesn't really fit with what everybody else is doing. You know, I think the junior person is it's absolutely legitimate for them to request that the team do this as a whole. Inappropriate for them to say, OK, I started a month ago. You guys are all idiots. So I'm going to say what the what the uh, the parameters should be. Yeah, uh, thank you so much for bringing up early career developers because there is a lot of problems. Of course, not in all companies, but it's really common for early career members of the team to feel like they are not respected. Like you mentioned in the beginning, experts will know better than you, but you still have, you are still a human being and you deserve to be respected. And I can say that's why. I was mentioning as I, as I was reading the book, I just went back when I was first starting to working with software. I had a hard time asking for help because didn't want to be that person that the team had to stop and help. And also for a lot of people, there is this fear of, oh, I'm not going to ask because they're doing me a favor. They gave me the, this job. I know I'm not good enough. And I wonder if you have anything to share. For this person that is feeling like this, this way, it's probably even thinking of giving up the job. What would you say for someone that is going through this? One thing I, I would say to them is whether you're the person for the job or not is actually none of your business. Uh, that's the business of the person who actually hired you. And they made the judgment that you were the person for the job. Now, they might have made some, you know, misperceptions in there. But the one thing that I think a lot of new employees, particularly in first few jobs, they really don't appreciate is just how much uh, your supervisor does not want to fire you. Be and, and that's not just because they're a nice human being, even though generally speaking they are, and even if they don't seem all that nice, it's because they're anxious. It's not because they're psychopaths necessarily. Not to say that there aren't some of those in the workplace as well. But, they, but in addition to whether they're a nice human being or have ordinary human emotions is the fact that hiring people is the most awful job in the world. Nobody likes to do it. And, you know, even if it turns out, well, you don't have quite the talents that I thought you did. I thought you would be really great at this. Turns out you're maybe better at that or whatever. We'll have to rejig things a little bit. Nobody wants to get rid of you because nobody wants to be doing job interviews again. You know, you think it's awful applying for jobs. 
trust me, being on the other side of that table, that's no treat either. Everybody feels inadequate on both sides of the table. So they don't want to get rid of you. When I'm an employer, and I've been an employer for many, many years now, one thing I fear is the employee who doesn't ask questions. Because I just know, like, how would they know exactly how this job goes, given that they have never done it before? The odds of that are zero. I depend on their feedback and I depend on their questions. And if they're not asking any questions, I say, okay, here, here's this really complex thing. We need to do this and we need to reorient all of that. Any questions? And they go, nope. I'm thinking, oh no, <laughs> please. You know, you didn't get all that. You know, you didn't. I know you didn't. Let's, you know, figure out what the questions are. So people really need to accustom themselves to that idea that asking questions and revealing your ignorance is an essential aspect of the job. It really is. And giving off the impression that you know it, know it all or completely understand the project when you don't, that's pretty transparent to people. And, and it, it, it comes off worse than if you actually ask questions. Now, there can be aspects when meetings, for example, you've got a team meeting with 10 people around and you're going, wait, what is this again? Like somebody explained to me this company that we're working for, that's going to be 10 people's time ticking down while one person explains it to you. It's a good idea to, to see if you can meet up with somebody after the meeting and say, listen, you know, there's something about this customer that I don't quite grasp. Could we meet for like 10 minutes after the meeting? Not everybody needs to hear this, uh, but it'll help me orient to whatever it is that we're doing. So really clear about asking questions. Don't feel you have to know it all. Nobody knows it all. And especially in first few jobs, it's a danger signal if you don't ask questions or, or expose things that you don't know. It's a danger sign to everybody around you. Yeah, I wish. We could travel back in a time capsule and I could say that <laughs> to myself because I was so caught up on what I didn't know that it's almost impossible for you to create space in your head to think, okay, I don't know that, but I can figure it out. And if I can't figure it out just by myself, I'm pretty sure there is someone in the world out there that can help me. And I'm, I'm pretty sure this is kind of related to the imposter syndrome as well, which is also something really common in this industry. I'm also sure for women and for all the minorities in this industry, it's also even higher. The, the problem is really, really, it's hard to just go through that just by yourself. Dr. Patterson is there. Also something that you can say to someone that is you know, just thinking, oh my gosh, I, I invested all of this money time into this career only to figure out that this is not for me. Everyone seems to be doing fine, but I'm the one and I'm the only one who's struggling. Well, the one thing to remember, I think, is that you have access to the work that you are doing, but also your internal state, all the self-doubt, all the self-questioning, an intimate awareness of whole realms of your profession that you have no clue about, the fact that you have never, in fact, programmed in that particular language that's being used for that bit of the project, and so on, right? And what you have with other people is access to their behavior. And their behavior is what they choose to 
reveal to others. And so when you compare yourself to others, you are always going to look less secure because you don't see their insecurities because that's not, it's not posted on their forehead. So you will always have that opportunity to think, I know less than others and I am more insecure than other people are. There's often the odd employee who's constantly saying, I don't know anything, I don't know what I'm doing and bursts into tears at every meeting. And you think, okay, maybe I'm more secure than them. But generally speaking, you're not going to perceive that. And especially if you're the new person in the team, of course you don't know as much as, as the others. There really is a, a, a stance about, I think, the professions, which is that no training program actually trains you to do your job. I, within psychology, I can tell you that somebody comes out and they graduate from a psychology program. This does not mean that when we hire you onto the transplant unit at St. Paul's, you immediately know what you're doing. You're going to have a period of time where you're thinking, how the heck does anything that I've I've learned have anything to do with this. Like where, like I have no clue what the role of a psychologist is on the transplant team. There is one, but you, you really don't know what you're doing. So training programs are not about teaching you how to do your job. They're about bringing you to a point where you can, upon hiring, be trained to do your job. Nobody expects you to be able to do your job when you show in the uh, walk in the door. It doesn't happen. And so there's a degree of normalizing that needs to take place. It's like, I haven't a clue what I'm doing. As, and it can be quite helpful, actually, for new employees to go in and say, no idea what this is about. <laughs> I'm going to need to figure it out. With regard to the imposter phenomenon, I actually made a post on this some time ago on the YouTube channel. People treat it as a bad thing. If you're doing something complicated, chances are you are an imposter, right? You don't know how to do it. You're gonna have to figure it out. You know, you just don't have what it takes to do all of it all at once. And if you're a member of a team, chances are you never will. Uh, that's why there's a team. That's why there are different people with different areas of expertise. And if there's nobody with an area of expertise that you need, that's when you get a consultant or get somebody else from the company. None of us have any clue how to do this. This is going to take calculus. None of us passed calculus. So, you know, that's when you do that. So I think normalizing ignorance is important and normalizing the fact that you are going to feel inferior relative to others is it, it's just it's just a natural part of, of, of what happens when you get in a team. This is why you socialize with people and say, you know, like they were talking about this bit of the thing. I've never done that in my entire life. That's what you, you share that over lunch or possibly over beer. And then what they will often do is share. Yeah, I had no idea what it was either. Or I totally get that, but I don't get this other bit. It's interesting that you're saying that because for people that are working, you know, they're new employees, you can have that communication with um, colleagues over beers, over coffee, and they can help you if you show some vulner vulnerability with them. But what happens with my mentee, so I mentor some uh, junior developers that don't have a job yet. And it's harder because even though you tell them, hey, you're not supposed to know everything. You're not going to know. So you just apply to jobs, just try it out, figure it out, you know, because even as a senior developer, you have to figure things out. You, you don't know everything. But for them, not having that 
access to other people because they're not working yet. They just feel so anxious and so bad about themselves. It's hard because I'm not a psychologist, you know. It's hard for me sometimes to help them. But I will say, okay, so do some meditation, you know. Just try to learn, accept yourself as you are, right? Because I think this is the greatest trick, maybe. It's just learn to accept yourself as you are. And then from that, you can change, you can improve, you can do whatever you want, right? But it's still hard to convince people. And if you have, do you have any thoughts on, on that topic? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, around insecurity, one of the things that's very helpful is, is realizing that it's almost like the insecurity is a voice, a separate person that's whispering in your ear. And one option is to try and shut it up just say, no, 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 I'm not thinking about it. No, no, I'm not thinking about it. No, 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 no. Another option, and it's often a better option, is sit down and listen. Like say, okay, well, tell me about that. Like, what do you, what do you mean? What do you mean? And, and I think to do this quite literally, I really encourage clients to do this very, very frequently. Actually sit down with paper. Do not try to do this in your head. It does not work. And right at the top of the page, I am a piece of crap because, or I am completely inadequate, or I will always be a failure because, and then, and then ask yourself, okay, so, so why? Like, what are, what are all the good bits of evidence that I'm terrible, too stupid, too untalented, will never, like, what are all the bits of evidence there? And actually write them down. Almost as though, you know, if you had this obnoxious person yelling at you about how awful you were, if you try and shut them up, it's very difficult to do that. But if you actually sit them down in a chair and say, okay, tell me everything you want. Let's hear it. Let's hear it. I'm terrible. Okay. Okay. How? 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 And really get it all out. When you get it down onto paper, and I am determined to believe, you know, programmers are probably very reluctant. Paper, by the way, is this product made from trees and it's, it's useful. Don't use a computer, use paper, write it down, and then, you know, really try and get all of the bad stuff. Don't argue with it line by line, but try and get as much of it as possible without arguing. Later, maybe three days later, come back and look at it and see, is there any wiggliness about it? Or does it feel really firm or is it a little shaky? It's like, I, because I don't know how to uh, program as well as insert famous programmer's name here. You know, okay, so does everybody have to be able to do that? Or is that what they're hiring me to do because they think I'm that guy? No, <laughs> actually. Or I could never do that for let's say the gaming industry, because I never programmed a game before, which was on my resume and they hired me anyway. So <laughs> you begin realizing that many of the things that you've been using to tear down your self-esteem, when you actually write them down and look at them head on, without just trying to divert your attention, head on, you realize that doesn't actually make sense. I remember meeting with a university professor at one point who really 
had the sense, I am the stupidest person on earth. And when she actually came up with it, she said, well, let's write that down. Thank you. Let's write that down. We wrote down, I am the stupidest person on earth. Then she was looking at that and thought, and, and lapsed into silence for a moment. And every good therapist knows, shut up when they do that. And, and eventually she came up with, that doesn't quite make sense, does it? And I, oh, how so? Well, there's no guarantee that if you have your PhD and you're employed by a university that you're any great genius. And I'd say, yes, that's true. There's no guarantee of that. Pretty much a guarantee you're not the absolute stupidest person on earth though. Yeah, yeah, that is pretty much guaranteed. Yeah, you, pretty much inconceivable. You are the stupidest person on earth. We don't know where you are amongst the rest, but you're not what you're saying. I mean, I, you know, I knew that this was a perfectly intelligent person and could reassure all I wanted to no effect whatsoever. But you realize that some of the overblown, exaggerated, overgeneralized statements that we make about ourselves are simply false. And when you recognize that falsity and can feel it in your bones, yeah, there might be some bad stuff about me, but that's, you know, that's way exaggerated. When you realize that, it takes away some of the sting. You know, a, a lot of programmers, I will say a lot of programmers, you know, accountants are not so good at risk. Account, you know, if you go into accounting, good chance you didn't go into it because you're a big risk taker. And if you went into programming, I, I don't think we can draw any similar conclusions, but I would say that a vast number of programmers are really not that comfortable with public speaking. You know, it's just not, not their thing. As a matter of fact, what many people notice is if you've, you know, what, regardless what your re regular level of skill is, if you've been programming for three days, you can't talk. Like you just, lose the ability to speak almost. <laughs> Lots of people notice this, like if they're completely in programming mode, it's like, yeah, and then I went out for coffee and I was like silent or couldn't think of anything to say. But at any rate, a lot of programmers, not so great uh, 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 with public speaking, they're very self-conscious about that until they realize none of these other guys are either. Not the women, not the men, not, none of us are that, you know, we're not that you know, that's, that's not, no, there's that one person on the team, but the rest of us, we communicate a little bit better in the way that we're used to communicating, which is in our programming languages. And so this is not necessarily a natural talent. And it may take more thought for some. Again, I know other programmers that you think like, what are you, party party planner? No, programmer, really? Uh, so a little bit of bigotry on my part, I suppose, uh, being exposed there. But it, it seems to be a, a thing and people feel like, oh, I'm the only one. No, no, people generally find it difficult. I don't know, I, I think we voyaged fairly far from that question, but anyway. Yeah, I was just going to say that what you were talking about, writing down your thoughts is really powerful. That was the first tool that I learned by doing the cognitive behavior therapy sessions. And I'm still amazed at how simple it is, yet how efficient it is. And thank you for bringing it up. 
it really is one of the tr trickiest things in, to, in therapy because you're telling people about this and they think that's so simple that poss can't possibly do very much. But it, it really is remarkable. If you actually listen to your negative thoughts and write them down, often the, the poor thinking or the distortions in them become immediately obvious. Not always, but often. Yeah. I just have one curious question before we move on to another topic. It's something that you said in one of the chapters. You mentioned really briefly that as, as kids, we tend to feel inadequate. And hopefully someone in our life said to us, hey, that's everyone feels this way. You are not inadequate and you change your perspective. But in my case, I didn't have no one with that ability. So I had to <laughs> learn that by myself after therapy. And my question is, why is it that we have this tendency to believe that we are inadequate? And if you didn't have someone like me who said the opposite to you, what is the first step for you to start to stop believing that? Hmm. Well, I think, I think one of the reasons that people feel so prone to feeling inadequate is because they are. You're born, you can't turn over. You can't swim, you can't program, you can't talk, you don't know language, you can't do any sport, you can't read, you can't do anything, right? So we come from a place of inability and gradually build up skills, but often that doesn't result in a rethinking of our talents. As well, when we compare ourselves to others, we have seemingly a natural talent for looking at outliers. So we go to a party and we see the one person who's absolutely the center of attention, can come up with every story and like is making everybody laugh and so on. Who do we compare ourselves with? Them. You know, we just start, took up the guitar like two weeks ago and there's somebody at the party who's, you know, like Springsteen is there at the party and he's, you know, and, and we're comparing, oh, I'm, no, I'm nothing, I'm nothing, I'm nothing compared to, to Springsteen. So we compare ourselves to outliers and inevitably feel inadequate by comparison. So I think that's part of it is, is just that we come from a place of not knowing stuff and then we don't reevaluate very well. And many people, you know, I don't think it's rare. I think it's quite common. Many people really don't have the experience of anybody saying, you've got this, you can totally do this. I think that's actually quite rare. I think people have a sense that like 90% of people have somebody like that and only 10%, including me. I think it's actually the other way around. Like most people don't have a cheerleader, never have had, and need, you know, and some people have had the exact opposite of cheerleaders, right? right? You're terrible. You're an idiot. You're the stupid one in the family, blah, 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 blah. You know, whatever people have that. That's more common than the cheerleaders. But I think for that reason, they need to become their own cheerleader to a great extent, not in an unrealistic way, not saying, oh, I know everything, you know, all these other programmers, they're idiots. And I'm like, I'll show them, you know, I'll be the top programmer in the company by next year. Don't be telling yourself lies or overly optimistic stuff, but recognizing, you know, I, I can probably figure this out. 
it, it's it's helpful and be able to kind of almost reparent yourself a little bit is 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 helpful but how does that work you mentioned reparenting yourself how does that work <laughs> I'm learn but, that. yeah I mean, that's a long topic however one of the things that i encourage many clients to do is to think okay well when did you feel your most inadequate you know most insecure most oh my god i don't know what i'm doing and i probably don't have what it takes to do it anyway and blah 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 like when when was that most damaged most terrified and so on what, what age were you oh 12 let's say you know people say all different ages interestingly but let's say they say age 12. okay tell you what i'd like you to do i want you to go home and i want you to find a photograph as close to 12 as you possibly can of yourself right and i want you to take that out of its book or envelope or off the the photos album in your computer and i want you to print it out really good printing you know take it to the you know the, the the photo shop or whatever like really good and i want you to put it in a frame and i want you to put it where it's visible and i want you to start talking to this kid i want you to tell this kid what this kid needed to hear when he was 12 years old and people feel unbelievably stupid doing this and yet once the, the there's sort of this layer of stupidity that you have to get through and then you can begin doing it and you can begin talking to this insecure aspect of yourself and, and you might think well it's a bit late now that was many years ago i don't know 12 year old still in there 12 year old still in there still waiting to 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 get reassured by somebody you can do this now because it's that 12 year old that's coming out in that meeting right it's that 12 year old that's coming out as you're going into the job interview and you need to be able to talk to him or her and and really cultivate that and get past the, the sort of the the seeming idiocy of doing this and be able to get into it people you can't really connect with it the first little bit that you do it but then eventually most people can and really imagine talking sanely to themselves and it's and again it's not unrealistic positivity that's never the the goal in cognitive therapy it's never you're, you're totally got you can do anything you want right no 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 that's never it it's always you're right you don't know how to do this this project you do not have a handle on this project but you didn't have a handle on the last five projects either and you figured it out you can probably figure this one out too you know realistic balanced thinking and being able to talk to that younger or insecure version of yourself very helpful i just loved how we turned this into a group therapy <laughs> but i'm sure Someone who's listening to this will relate for sure. I certainly did a lot and I don't mind sharing all of this because it took me quite a while to just recognize that I needed to go to therapy and that I was not a weak person for doing that. So if I can help someone to simply understand that they might need to ask for help then i'm super happy to talk about my insecurities it's so helpful 
And, and, and you know, in anxiety, what, what really helps us is to approach the very thing that makes us anxious. So if there's a real fear that people are going to discover that you don't know anything about this bit of the project that you're working on, if you reveal that you don't know it, the fear's mostly gone because what, they're going to realize something that you just told them? They already know it, right? There's nothing, to, there's nothing in the future that's going to bite you now. <laughs> you're just, you're, you already revealed it. It's like if you're giving a talk and you're anxious and you're terrified that people will figure out that you're anxious, the very best thing to do is to get up there and say, wow, I'm really anxious today. Anyway, so I'm talking about, and then, and then get into it, give it away right off the bat. If you try to hide your inadequacy or, or insecurity, you know, hoping that nobody can perceive it, you're going to magnify the fear. So it's, it's helpful to be able to share that. And, and indeed, on a, on a programming team, for example, to find somebody who seems reasonably nice and be able to say, you know what, I haven't a clue about this. Or I get this part, but this part, I don't get it. And, and share that it can be very helpful. We were watching one of your videos about anxiety. I don't know which one was it but you were talking about avoidance and anxiety and you said that the worst thing you can do is to avoid yeah it's the nature of every anxiety disorder or anxiety near disorder like everybody has anxiety um is that it has two components the emotional component which is the anxiety but the behavioral component which is the avoidance of what sparks the anxiety so, you know, if a dog bikes, bites you and you get afraid of dogs, the more energy you spend running away from dogs, the more fearful you're going to get. It's like there's sort of almost a theme in sort of science fiction-y movies or something where the, the more you fire lasers at the enemy, the stronger it gets. Seems to me that this is a recurrent theme in these things. The more you fire at it, the more you run away from what you fear, the stronger the fear gets over time. In the moment, it goes away because you're not around any dogs anymore. But overall, it gets worse. So if you're targeting the anxiety, it tends not to work as well. So anxiety management is often not the best strategy. It's avoidance management that's the best strategy. So moving towards the things that stress you out. And I think overcoming the idea that you should be comfortable. You know, if you're comfortable, you're in your zone of comfort. And, and what that means is you're not being challenged. But I think a lot of people interpret that sense of insecurity, that kind of fluttery feeling in your stomach, that sense of, I don't know how this is gonna work. Like, like, how, like I don't get it. They interpret that feeling as meaning there's something wrong and you need to get away from this. As opposed to something that is much more likely to be true, which is this is where you're going to learn something. This is, this is the zone of mild discomfort and it is exactly the zone you want to be in if you want your comfort zone to expand. You have to challenge yourself a bit. I love that. I remember reading about this posture of doing what you're scared by reading a book called the confidence code 
Mm-hmm. And it's about confident women and how do they approach challenges and fear. And the main takeaway from the book was, are you scared? So do it anyway. That's how you become confident. And I have been doing, you know, some work on this pretty small. And every time that I feel that butterfly flying in my stomach, I'm always, oh, I think this is a sign that I should do it because it's probably something really good at the other side. <laughs> and yeah. It really changes your perspective. Yeah, let's face it. It doesn't always 100% of the time pay off, but uh, it's going to pay off much more than if you stay in your little zone of comfort. The, the metaphor that I always use for the zone of comfort is that garbage room in Star Wars because you're you're in that and it feels like okay we're okay and then the walls start moving inward because the more time you spend in your zone of comfort the smaller it gets it just keeps on shrinking and the only way to get it to get bigger again is to is to voyage outside it like you go to something that makes you feel anxious and you go there three times doesn't make you anxious the fourth time not nearly as much so that's how to you know, expand that zone of confidence. A lot of people have this idea that you have to retreat to your comfort zone, your your happy place, and really sort of build up your strength there. And that's what will make you comfortable doing these things that you've never done before. It's completely wrong. What will make you comfortable doing those things you've never done before is doing them, including being assertive with your coworkers or revealing, you know, what you want to know or by, you know, asking for the criticisms of your code and and asking, you know, can you tell me more about, about what exactly, like if this was exactly right, what would it look like? What are the differences? Let's see if we can get down to that. And then you can decide whether you're going to believe them or not. You don't have to necessarily swallow it all, but at least you'll know. I love the example of, okay, can you show me how do you see this being better? And because most of the times we simply can't guess, like we are bad guesses. And if you want to know what the person is actually asking, it's always good to ask because we are bad guesses. (laughs) It's astonishing how many companies rely on management by telepathy, that somehow you're supposed to magically know what it is that this other person wants without them actually saying so. And the reality is we're all crappy at that. And, and we need to be able to say, tell me, tell me what, what you want. And at least I'll have some idea. And then I might realize that's not going to work. Like, that may be what you want, but that's not going to work or whatever. But at least you'll, you'll have some idea of, of what you're going for. That attempt to guess is almost always bad strategy. Yeah, this reminds me of a situation that causes a lot of pain and anxiety for developers, which is the project that is late and everything is broken and see a bunch of problems everywhere. And then the whole team knows it. Everybody knows it. They don't say it. Maybe mm-hmm. after work, they, they talk about, oh, this project is, is a mess. It's not going to work. But nobody has the courage to confront management about this or even to talk about it to point out the problems and what's, what happens is you the deadlines slip by and you have to overwork and then you keep working and then you have to 
work late and you work on the weekend so a lot of burnout comes from that you know that anxiety that stress but nobody is willing or nobody is has the courage to say hey this is not going in the right direction how can we change this how can we change the deadline how can we move things around and make it better yeah because nobody wants to be that negative person in a way and i see that happening so often it happens everywhere where everybody knows that the project is going to fail but nobody says a thing about it and then at the end it fails because it's kind of a collective uh, opinion or yeah a belief about the project and it just happens and then everything doesn't work and so what can you do about that if you know that it's gonna fail what can you do well i think part of the problem is that a lot of organizations just don't have a way of dealing with that but i think a part of it too is that people are afraid of a kind of shoot the messenger kind of thing like if you're the one person on the team who goes up and says listen there are some serious problems with this and we're not going to make february 13th it's just not going to happen then that person is going to be labeled the you know the problem uh, a better approach is to speak about it amongst the team as a whole and try and figure out like what is realistic what do we actually think about this what are the points we need management to understand and then invite management to attend where one person maybe speaks at it but everybody else nods a lot you know so it's not just the one complainer or whiner who's who's doing this or at least it's not interpreted that way but management understands that this is almost a universally held opinion it's a bit tricky because there might be one person who thinks no we can totally do it'll work whatever you know you may need to you know get that person on an off day or something like that you know when they're not around send them out, send them out for pizza or something so i think i think that part of it is unified you know like get the team together so that everybody talks about it and and then present it sort of as a unified front but also present it as what it truly is management does not want to be shipping something that they're going to be you know have mud on their faces for for like the next year right oh you remember when they came out with that version that, that totally didn't work you know that company is a bit you know iffy on its product no no manager wants that and they might not want it to be shipped late either but given the choice between those two they'll pick shipped late over shipped garbage generally that's not true in every organization i don't think i think there are a lot of organizations it's like no well like it's held together with you know scotch tape but we'll just hope for the best i think there are organizations like that but i think to to a great extent if the team can get together and say you know what we want this company to succeed we're not doing this because we want weekends we want this because we want to be working next year and not on stress leave and because we actually want this project to work because this reflects on us and our stock options if any <laughs> so being able to sort of frame the, the feedback as as it applies to the priorities of the person you are talking to can be very helpful 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is really interesting. Talking in a way that your manager understands and it's related to his or her priorities. Mm-hmm. But I think sometimes, like you mentioned, uh, developers are kind of bad at speaking and public speaking. Since sometimes they can't really communicate the the danger or the problem, you know, because I've seen that happening. And I, I guess it's it's tricky. You know, you have to learn how to communicate with everybody, your manager, your team, and make them understand your point of view, right? It's it's very tricky. One of the, you know, and again, I don't want to make too much of that that overgeneralization about about programmers. It's sort of a slight trend, I would say, rather than a, a sentence for everybody. But one thing that they're better at is is writing in with precision, right? If you're not precise in code, nothing nothing works. So being able to say, here are the seven points where we're having trouble. And actually like figure out, write them down, have one person maybe draft the message, have somebody else look at it and say, I don't get that. Like, what do you mean? Or or you missed three. Okay. And write those down. And then possibly submit it. In, in paper or email. That you can do in email. That can sometimes go over well. Here are our concerns. One, two, three, four. We want to make sure that when we ship, our product is going to, it's going to work. It's going to do what we said it was going to do. And, and these are our concerns at the moment and what it will take to, to address them. And nobody's going to be that happy. You know, everybody's happier when things come in on time and under budget or ahead of time and under budget, but they're not going to be as unhappy as they will be if the company goes under. I think it's, this is actually, you know, like the, the survival rate of new tech companies is so low. And I think this is actually one of the reasons it's bad communication. It, you know, products are sold based on hopes rather than actualities. Yeah. I was given all of this conversation I was thinking, let's say that I tried communicating better. I tried putting a team effort. Still, nothing has changed. When does one, I don't want to use give up, but when does one draw the line? Like, okay, you know, this is actually what I can do, but this is not a place for me because usually what happens is you don't communicate. You have, you have a lot of time you, or you just give criticism and it's not corrective. So people don't change. That is the easiest path to, oh, I'm simply going to find another job. Like I, I don't care about this. This team doesn't respect me. We are not aligning. But I'm thinking of the other scenario where the person did try their best at communicating clearly and stating their, their requests. When does this person should make the decision? I'm going to find somewhere else. Well, I think, I think prior to that, there is the option of, of looking at it and saying, look, I am a cog in a very big machine and I have a job. And my job is not to oversee this project. Nobody put me in that position. My job is to do this. Now I can inform them, this is not going to work with that. I did my job. I, I have 
said what I needed to say. They don't have to do anything about it, but I have the email. I <laughs> printed it out, so it's in my file. Like, look, I told you, if you need to need it. But recognize that you cannot control everything. That that I think people start out with programming. Really, you're doing your own projects, you know, from start to finish, and then you get involved in these huge things, and you're just doing a little bit of it. And so the natural temp tendency is to go from your little bit to, you know, total management of the project and then feel frustrated. And it, to some extent, I think it is appropriate for you to be able to say, I have done my part. I have done what I was asked to do. And I recognized some problems and I informed people of those problems. I cannot make them make the right decision. I can tell them what the problem is. I cannot make them solve it or I cannot make them pay attention. You know, to be able to release that to some extent, I think is important in every major organization. Certainly from working in hospitals, I, I can tell you that, you know, things happen in hospitals and you think, mm, this, you know, this needs to change. This, and I don't mean necessarily medical decision-making, although sometimes there's issues there, but I, I'm thinking, you know, structurally, I, you know, I don't think this, employee evaluation system is necessarily such a great idea. But you know what? Am I the head of HR? No. Fine. Point made. We'll do it. Whatever. At some point, though, I think it's important to recognize that you are not in the business of making um, buggies for horses. You know, you're in programming. And I think that what you will discover is that there aren't that many unemployed programmers out there who cannot find anything. And I think what this does is it creates a selection environment for companies with, with good policies, you know, companies that actually respect their, their staff, that have good diversity inclusion policies. And I think increasingly people recognize that this is almost a, a seller's market for skills. People are really looking and it's perfectly reasonable that if you have a company with crappy management who just yell at the programming team or, or treat them like idiots, great, you know, try to find programmers if you want, but I'm going to a company that actually respects this because we're no longer at that point where we're all, you know, starving. We might become, go into that at some point in the future. There's absolutely no sign of it. But right now, no, you know, I think people need to, at some level, grasp that this is a Darwinian environment and you're not competing for customers, you're competing for staff. I love that. And I just wanted to share that I have been listening to Dr. Goldman, the, the author of Emotional Intelligence, the book, and they, they talk a lot about how organizations can build more emotional intelligence teams and it, it's a really nice podcast if anyone is interested in just changing how you treat everyone and they certainly talk a lot about this like people need to find a purpose and to find a value in what they do every day otherwise it's going to be hard for them to stay at their jobs and yeah just start off sharing that yes emotional intelligence at work is a uh... A, a book out there still, I believe, that addresses those concepts within workplace settings.
Dr. Patterson, given our conversation today, I wanted to ask if there is something that we should have asked, but we didn't. Not particularly, I don't think. I mean, assertiveness is a is an enormous topic. I'm waiting for the second edition of my book to come out so that I can do an online course on it. I'll sort of release that at around the same time. But there are some videos on assertiveness already at my YouTube channel, which is called How to Be Miserable, although it's about to be rebranded, actually, as Psychology Salon, because some people find the How to Be Miserable title a bit off-putting. <laughs> and anyway, if people just look for my name, Randy Patterson, with one T, they will probably be able to track, track down the channel, and then there's a, a list of uh, assertiveness stuff. The other thing is that if people want to practice a sort of public presentation skills, one of the things that psychologists routinely refer to is Toastmasters. And there are Toastmasters groups for many, many different professions. They're, they're allied not just by community, but by, but by profession. And I bet, I don't know if this is true, but I bet there's one for people in tech and IT. And that can be a great way of learning this stuff and, and, and you know, practicing one's skills. Yeah, so we, we both are members of the Toastmasters group here in Vancouver. There are, I guess, three clubs, clubs here in Vancouver. So yeah, it's definitely a great suggestion if you want to learn public skills. Toastmasters is the place to be. And just making a point of, you know, speaking up in meetings and volunteering to do the you know, status update report, <laughs> you know, or whatever whatever it might be. Because I think keeping your mouth shut until you become a better communicator is not the best strategy. Practice works. Yeah, I love that. That was a, a great way to summarize our conversation. And Dr. Patterson, I'm really happy to have you here today. Thank you so much for the invitation, for sharing your amazing insights and tips. And I'm really grateful for having met you and talking to you today. Thank you. Great. Well, you're welcome. Thank you. It's been fun. Thank you so much, Dr. Patterson. So I guess if people want to practice assertiveness skills, they should grab your book or they should go to your YouTube uh, channel and they can learn more about this. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. The YouTube has a number of videos based in part on the book and, and the book is available through all booksellers and online sources and etc. By the way, I did a speech at our Toastmasters Club and I talked about assertiveness and I recommended the book and everyone was sending me like in the feedback form. Oh, Stephanie, thank you so much for the book recommendation. <laughs> It was so funny that we talked about those masters here. <laughs> yeah, if people want to see other reviews, there's lots of reviews on the on this thing in on Amazon, but also on Goodreads, which is a site where readers review books. So if you're not entirely sure which of the many assertiveness books you want to read, uh, that's a good place to sort of comparison shop before you before you buy. I I can't recommend enough. Like I said in the beginning, it changed my life, and I'm sure it will change someone else's life who's listening to the podcast. Great. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode. We put lots of love into the HexDevs podcast, and we hope you learned something insightful. Before you go on with your day, could you share this episode with a friend or a colleague? That would help us a lot. 
And don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter to get exercises, tools, insights to help you become a Ruby expert developer. See you on the next episode.